Hi, and welcome to my podcast series, The New Abnormal, which aims to make sense of our COVID-19 world today and tomorrow. I'm Sean P. Lodishenesi, researcher, author, and speaker from Brand Positive. As a researcher, I've spent 20 years conducting ethnographic interviews on global projects. Along the way, I've been lucky enough to have met some amazing people, from psychologists to activists to creatives, some of whom I'll be talking to in this series. I'm also the author of The Post-Truth Business, which focused on trust, empathy and privacy, while my second book, Influences and Revolutionaries, looked into innovation, behavioural change and the climate crisis. So, I hope you enjoy the interviews, and if so, please tell your friends, leave a rating and watch out for our other episodes. Now, without further delay, let's crack on with today's podcast. So today I'm really pleased to be joined by Lucy Green. She's a forecaster, strategist and author specializing in cultural trends, consumer insight and brand innovation. Uh, She's based in Los Angeles or rather was until very recently. She's just moved back over to New York uh, where her futures practice, Light Years, uh, works with numerous global lifestyle brands on strategy research and innovation. She also advises venture capital and rising startup companies. Um, more recently, she led J. Walter Thompson's global futures think tank, JWT Intelligence, steering original research into emerging consumer behaviours, cultural shifts and lifestyle trends with JWT Intelligence leading units around the world, while also consulting uh, many of their Fortune 500 clients. She also launched the Future 100, uh, JWT's annual trends report, which is now, uh, A, incredibly um, well-known and is translated into 10 languages. Uh, back in 2018, she also released her debut book, The uh, Superb Silicon States, The Power and Politics of Big Tech and What It Means for Our Future. A copy is on my desk right now. Um, She's also been featured as an expert on trend and and consumer insights on the BBC, Fox News, CBS, CNBC and Bloomberg TV, as well as contributing pieces to Campaign, The Guardian, New York Daily News, Sunday Times, Style UK and the Financial Times. She's also spoken at several international conferences, including CES, the WWD Summit, the Web Summit, uh, the Epic South by Southwest and Cosmoprof, uh, and is also on the board of uh, Cosmetic Executive Women USA. So, Lucy Green, wow, what an intro and hi, how are you? Gosh, what an enormous bio. Yes, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> So we we're just saying before this. So, uh, so you're you, you've just shifted over to uh, New York from LA, and it's made just such a sort of. A, I know, obviously, as a journalist, you always talk in such a sort of a, an eloquent manner. But you're talking about that the sounds of New York uh, being well from the uh, pleasant to the uh, obviously at the moment the uh, deeply worrying that the sounds around you are silence, seagulls, helicopters, and ambulances. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a very strange place to be here. Um, you've probably seen from the news reports that anyone of a certain high net worth is, has fled the city. So it's just the unfortunates left here <laughs> with the prospect wow. 
a boiling summer ahead. So you moved back from um, LA um, recently, so now you set up Light Years, which sounds really, really fascinating. So perhaps just, just talk us through what that move was like, what you're up to now, um, and uh, yeah, what's um, what's been going on until up to, obviously, um, the pandemic hit. Oh, uh, yeah, so I um, I took the leap. I've always, uh, for a long time, I wanted to do my own thing and had also bigger long-term ideas about how to... Um, move on, I guess, or um, experiment with the process of uh, trend forecasting with a more integrated model, because um, at the moment, it's sort of very, there's lots of different, like, trend forecasting is a big, very fat umbrella, essentially, and you have anything from colour forecasting to companies that look at runway trends to macro sort of trend companies, and then you have the sort of more academic Brookings Institute type companies um, but also there sort of seems to be a split between the art and the science of it, and I, I hope long-term to build a sort of an integrated model. But in the short term, I just wanted to have a go at launching my own company. Um, so we're a small specialist practice. Um, I was fascinated with LA for ages, so on a sort of leap of faith, I moved over there and then found that I promptly disliked LA intensely. Um, I don't know if it's a British thing or that I was too ingrained as a New Yorker, but I found a sort of slightly suburban um albeit very sunny life there um not for me and so i have um not least because actually it turned out all my work was in new york and europe um interesting so i was living on a plane so um, i'm in new york now and um, like this is doing really well i was really lucky in that um i've sort of been able to quite quickly um, established an, an, a lovely client client base um i've invested in some you know original research but but really, we focus on the sort of connection between three areas, like emerging cultural ch- change, consumer insight, and like basically examining the consumer outlook on the world. Um, yeah. And then looking at innovation in various sectors, so the future of beauty, the future of retail, the future of lifestyle, but very much how it ladders back to those two other driving forces of consumer perception yeah. and behavior and cultural change, and then, and then helping brands sort of map against that. Mm. Nice. And, and and on that, by the way, um, just in terms of how things have impacted you sort of like personally as a business, I mean, I mean, I'm presuming, I mean, certainly uh, where I'm over here, obviously in the UK, uh, things have naturally, as they have everywhere, grand to a halt. There is some um, activity still continuing. Um, people are finding their way around some of the sort of uh, uh, areas of research that can be done and other ones obviously being put on ice. Meanwhile, in straightforward big agency world, you know, a few people are creeping back into offices, etc. Um, what, what's the situation like uh, with yourself uh, in terms and and the the links you have with agencies in terms of what's happening on the agency scene over there? In terms of are people actually doing stuff or are they all just literally um, hanging around, staring out the window? Do you know what? I've tried to not follow that, um, uh, so it's difficult for me to comment. But I do think. People are very much focusing on trying to be proactive and in, invest in new ways and creative ways to create stimulus and be of service to clients. Um, I mean, for me, uh, certainly it's been interesting to see, of course, similar things in, you know, I, I uh, work with big travel companies. And um, so obviously stuff like that has been put on hold. But, um, but on the other hand, you know, 
there's a lot of, of course, speculation as to what this means to not only the near term, like what, how to reach consumers now, how to not um, annoy them or offend them in this mm-hmm. deeply sensitive moment, and but also trying to map out or try and map out what kind of strategies brands need to build for the future. So on that hand, mm-hmm. so on the one hand, there's been a sort of wobble, but then I'm seeing now already uh, uh, like a desire to really try and plan and develop strategies on what that might look like. Mm. And by the way, one of the really sort of key areas, um, possibly sort of, you know, the key area that's been, um, you know, utilised obviously more than anything else at the moment is uh, the world of tech in all of its formats. A really interesting um, um, narrative at the moment um, is, and I really like, really be interested to hear your views on this. And I, so I've got your book in front of me now. Um, and um, so just the beginning of that. So when you're saying literally, so where the book described as, you know, a bracing look at how Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook and other Silicon Valley power players are using their influence across the globe to encroach upon our civil landscape. Uh, and then briefly then says in an era when faith in government and its institutions is quickly eroding, the businesses of Silicon Valley are stepping in to fill the gap with outsized supplies of cash, talent and ambition. A small group of corporations have been gradually seizing leadership and consumer confidence around the world. So on one side, um, um, we had that the, the, the huge debate around the sort of tech lash. And, and certainly I know that you were endlessly quoted because the book is absolutely brilliant. And yet at the moment, there's quite a lot of talk about actually that being totally over. And people are now viewing the tech brands as their great friends because they've be basically helped everyone to to connect and to move things forward during the pandemic just where do you sit on that debate now i mean have we have we, have we basically forgiven them and now they're our friends or or what i think it's a really complex subject because it depends whether you're coming at it uh, from a consumer and consumer behavior point of view from a philosophical point of view um, like let's not forget like quite how um ambidextrous these companies are and on how many levels we engage in them and increasingly um, being involved in our, you know, state and federal and, you know, our governments, right? So, yeah, I do agree that there has been a sort of, like before COVID, of course, there was this rising tech clash emphasis on um, bringing these guys to heel and that had reached consumer consciousness too. Um, And I do think they have being given a brief respite from that. Um, So less of, I guess, the sort of cultural or discourse criticism, right? And, 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 um, but I don't know if that is going to continue. And I think, I think that is going hand in hand with a sort of, in particular, it's not sort of consistent by market, but in places like the US, I think there's definitely um, a lack of faith in in government, and also, frankly, um, it's becoming clear that government resources and platforms and websites are sort of not with the times of not being invested in. And so, whether it's tech companies or tech billionaires, are sort of becoming um, a default in terms of being not only sort of speaking sense, advocating for science. Um, giving away big sums of money. I mean, there's sort of rumblings in liberal media, I guess, about 
you know, of course, they're not paying taxes. But overall, I, I think that um, in the absence of big other solutions, um, they are sort of being given more, more latitude. Naomi Klein mm. wrote a really interesting piece about that, about how this is sort of creating a wild west for the um, to mix loads of metals for the, uh, well, no, it's the same, actually, that works for the big tech to do a big land grab. And when you look in New York in particular, you have Eric Schmidt being involved with the with Cuomo's efforts, you have Bill Gates, you have uh, Bloomberg. So there's this argument that, um, you know, the, the pandemic is being privatized here, but in order to actually just get something done um, in lieu of federal assistance. So you have that. And then, and then there's this sort of practical sense of technology and you have the fact that, you know, I think never, I mean, thank God for the internet, frankly, and I would be the first person to say <laughs> to say that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, on the one hand, you have that rising concern about privacy and, and all of that stuff, but we're literally living on the internet right now and spending yeah. more, more time on it um, than ever before. And, and simultaneously, you've got these tech companies becoming, you know, Apple and Google being involved in the sort of contact tracing effort. Um, so I think it's, I think, and I, I actually hope that it's temporary um, because uh, and the, the US is still talking about, uh, you know, there's, there's still an impending antitrust trial for Google. Um, I don't know how, if that will be toothless or not. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think it's contextual, in other words, and I hope that there is a review of what the sort of in wartime or emergency <laughs> um, conditions has been put in place and uh, whether that should continue afterwards. Mm. I think it's really fascinating. So that that issue of um, uh, friend or foe. Um, I mean, also, the, what about the, you mentioned a point there about sort of lack of faith in government? Again, one of the narratives has been um, that uh, is being sort of quite widely written about is um, on the issue of you know trust um, uh, and faith in government and core institutions. That again, just like the tech lash being either over or temporarily put on hold or being a uneasy truce or whatever, um, depending on which side of the fence one is, um, there's a, um, a narrative that says that actually our trust in government has in fact come right back because they are the only ones that can really advise and uh, protect us. And so, again, just as we were um, viewing the Silicon Valley brands and, should we say, tech brands in general through a very um, acerbic viewpoint uh, and until very recently, actually now everyone's got huge amounts of faith in government. Now, I know you just mentioned this, but just to be clear, your perspective on that in terms of yeah, I mean, doing I, Again, I, I think it really depends. Is this based on a certain study or, or market? Because I would say that really depends on the country or or region. I would say in the US, actually. And I, I, you almost have to un untangle like government as a concept or the state as a concept versus mm. who, who is actually in charge. Because I, maybe I'm in my liberal media bu bubble, but I would say in the US... Um, there's an in intrinsic distrust of government generally, hence they're all ignoring measures and no one's wearing masks in, key in some states. And, um, you know, no one wants to be told what to do. Um, likewise, there's a, quite an intense scrutiny of the British government and their handling of it currently. Uh, but in other nations who have uh, handled it well, have strong governments, I, I imagine it's been very good um, for, for, for them. Um, 
But I do think there is this review of the social contract and that was kind of happening and, and like a sort of appreciation for the role of safety nets and community and um, shared public systems, services like the NHS. I think you know, you'd already seen that sort of pre this, um, the Economist was very scathing about the sort of misguided millennials embracing socialism. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But you have seen this sort of move to the left and also um, a dialogue around how basic principles like uh, universal healthcare and taxing high net worth individuals and billionaires is actually, it's not a super socialist concept. It's just, it was actually very um, mainstream. It's mainstream now and it's main, it was mainstream in the 50s when there was a huge time of prosperity. So the, the sort of so-called uh, uh, socialist principles are not actually that radical. Anyway, yeah. sorry, I digress. But essentially, no. we've already seen millennials sort of starting to embrace this idea of like a state actually, and, and may, maybe the sort of hyper-capitalist, you know, the fact that even the Financial Times was calling for a redrawn version of capitalism that was do, doing more good and less um, harm, and, you know, sort of anti-consumption movements as well, like, I think all of that was in place before COVID. I think now that we're in this time of crisis, I think people are sort of really seeing in some in some countries how withered state infrastructure is thanks to years of austerity and cuts and thinking, what, what, why did we do this? And maybe we need to rethink our, our you know, our social contract. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I remember the, um, the, the one of the... Um, recent um it's probably about a year ago now great sort of economist cover when it had sort of a, a sort of a, a take on an old sort of russian constructivist sort of a type thing um and uh yeah so a, a lot of talk about um um humane capitalism and, and rethinking capitalism in terms of exactly you know what is it uh you know what is the end result of all that and lots of talk about um yeah the social contract and what does it mean particularly in the in the current uh state but the, in terms of that by the way just to, someone mentioned the other day and something that I'm, I'm not clear about being on this side of the atlantic um in terms of people being um furloughed uh, um, I was talking the other day with um, again one of the sort of leaders of big US um, agency network. He said something like twenty percent of the entire US advertising um, force have been laid off and um, and are furloughed. And furloughed in the US means a different thing that, than it does on this side of the Atlantic. So basically, people being laid off and that's it; they're just out the door. Is is, is that right? And is it? I mean, that figure twenty percent um, just seems massively high. I mean, I haven't seen that figure, I've got to be um, honest, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, the just um, scale of unemployment generally and also in key sectors from marketing to media um, has been has been like more than anything. There was an amazing New York Times front page on the first day of unemployment claims after this. Um, it was higher than the Great Depression um, higher than like anything that they've they've seen before, and given um, the consolidation going on in advertising to the sort of tech giants again on a commercial level, uh, yeah, that that's uh, not to mention the fact that um, ad budgets are being slashed, and also don't forget a lot of legacy um, agencies were already sort of in in managed decline um i can see how this has accelerated a lot of that so so yeah 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 so i mean on that then i mean one of again one of the um 
sort of you know, issues of the moment in terms of uh, employment is with regards to all the college leavers who've be who had obviously paid you know vast amounts for their education and and have been looking to go into obviously many of them have been looking to go into um, the agency world in, in in all of its sort of myriad sort of uh, uh, forms. I mean, um, so obviously a lot of that has been put on nice. But in terms of where agency world has been going over the last few years, I mean, what would your advice be if you were talking to, you know, the old question, if you were talking to the sort of a 22-year-old you or whatever, um, leaving college, looking into which bit of the agency um, world a graduate should be looking to go into, what, what would be... Uh, you, what's, what are your thoughts there? Which is the bit that's um, that the sort of dynamic bit and that has sort of a real energy and whatever a future in it? Sure. If any. Well, so I mean, the I've been doing a lot of research recently. In fact, I just did a partnership with um, a London-based agency called um, Cults, which is a, a very cool creative agency. But but also yeah. doing work with clients on this idea of like the future of creative media and what that looks like um, in this era of massive t- uh, channel change from the internet of things of 5G, uh, so long as the masks aren't put down, um, yeah. to verbal and visual recognition being completely integrated. And, and, and now, you know, with even Samsung creating these sort of avatars that can speak to you live as you're sort of yeah. as like her on steroids. Yeah, um, yeah. This huge convergence between gaming, augmented reality, e-commerce, social um, media. So there's a huge amount of, of like what what does creative media and marketing look like when all the what the traditional ways in which you communicate with consumers are completely in, in flux. And as part of that, I was looking um, at some of the most interesting artists and creatives in this space, and like the. What's interesting about the sort of younger, the 20-somethings up to sort of 30-something creatives that are really exciting in the space is that they've grown up with technology and they have an incredibly fluid, multidisciplinary approach to it, which I think is only going to set them up to sort of creating content in a very agile, um, uh, sort of, yeah, a non-linear way. So people that would consider themselves a composer a, um, a, a gaming artist, a poet, and can code and can also, but also this very natural attitude to working in multidisciplinary teams. So, um, mm-hmm. so being like not just approaching this as a single. Like I would really say, the biggest thing I gleaned from from that piece of research was looking at how um, you know it's really the death of like the single. Oh, sorry, but white male creative as hero and more yeah yeah like the future of creatives is collectives and so Mm. you know scientists engineers coders um uh uh, developers and um all all working together to create these sort of what 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 a lovely um jacob kirstensen who's a a, an augmented reality and mixed media artist who's worked with google and and so on, um, and exhibited at the Serpentine, uh, he called it networked experiences. So these sort of layered mm. multimedia experiences that are very immersive using technology in really creative ways. So I think really start to think about channel and medium in a really free fall way. And I think younger generations actually have that very intuitively. In fact, last year, um, I also did some work with Snapchat looking at Gen yep. Z's. Um, mm. And how they're already that on kind of on steroids. They're already creating 
their own art and soundscapes and and products um, using digital platforms and and selling them. <laughs> and yeah. so I think working in that sort of collaborative, agile, multidisciplinary way is going to set you up forward going forward. And, and then the other thing is, you know, this is something I saw even before COVID. You've just got like more and more and you know, I know there's been a lot of coverage about how, you know, working remotely is now being proven for a lot of traditional companies. But I've been personally working with a lot of two-person companies, one-person companies who bring in, um, com- you know, experts and contractors and people, you know, sort of, um, as someone's called it, solve and dissolve teams, right? And um, Solve and dissolve, that's great. <laughs> Um, I can't take credit for it, but um, but, <laughs> uh, but um, like these super agile companies that don't need the overheads, they don't even have offices, and quite often are nomadic or you know split their time between various countries. And the difference is between now and maybe like ten years ago is that they're winning major major brand business, like big mm. brands taking big bets. So I think that idea of trust in like traditional creative institutions is not necessary, or or these brands are taking more chances on these sort of non-traditional ideas of what a company is. Mm. Really interesting. I mean, um, uh, 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 just on that exact point, about yeah, about a week ago, I just did a thing with um, you know the, the Network One with uh, Julian Building and, and that crew, obviously who link into um, you know, networks around the world of independent agencies, and about exactly like your own. And so they always talk about you know his real sort of clarion call is you know stronger together. He says um, you know, global agency networks are neither well designed for original thinking nor are they particularly well designed for local customization. Um, and certainly there seems to be a lot of um, sort of a positive feedback around his point there but uh, kind of just remind me so you who is it so in terms of the network experiences uh, what's the person jacob yeah Kurt steenson he's danish but based in new york it's um k-u-d-s-k steenson steenson yes but did an amazing yes i i um i should have it in front of me um did an incredible exhibit called the deep listener at um, the Serpentine, which was um, one of the first or most groundbreaking augmented reality art experiences in which people um, were guided on a sort of tour of the real gardens and um, uh, the phone sort of set off uh, various um, almost otherworldly creatures in in augmented reality. But but he'd also worked with a sound artist to trigger interesting um, otherworldly soundscapes on on top of that and the, between that and the fact that groups were doing it at the same time it had this sort of really weird um but cool um immersive aspect to it too as people sort of navigated and um triggered various different um animations but it's interesting the idea of even the smartphone being used to experience fine art like that would have mm. been antithetical uh, a few years ago yeah yeah really fascinating um, what about another thing? I mean, so linked to your, um, uh, um, your, your certainly your first book, that issue of, um, I mean, where we are now, certainly from the point of view of, and obviously has implications for the whole world, but particularly in the US, you know, um, you know, you've got obviously uh, the presidential election um, coming up, looming over the horizon. In fact, well over the horizon now. I mean, one of the, you know, really big issues around uh, the issues. Are, uh, 
particularly with regards to uh, tech. Um, back in the 2016 election, um, was the issues around, you know, fake news and disinformation, um, misinformation, deep fakes and all the rest of it. Uh, what's the the sort of, as you say, the sort of tech atmosphere like now where you are in terms of um, the sort of, you know, the, the levels of trust or mistrust or distrust towards uh, the media and messages that are coming out about politicians and uh, the political sort of process? Yeah, I haven't seen the most recent polls about that, but I, it has been really interesting to see Facebook make a considerable effort to at least um, moderate and regulate uh, misinformation about coronavirus um, mm-hmm. in a way perhaps it, ha- it hasn't before. And this, this feels like a sort of a seed change in the effort to sort of be, uh, I'm stealing from Google, but be less evil. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They, they definitely seem to be making effort. And, uh, you know, of, of course, that's on the coattails of talking making a big deal about privacy uh, before that um, as a sort of a, at least a, a platform to rally around. I'm not sure how mm. far along they are with actually making more privacy settings into um, yeah. the product. But, but yeah, there's definitely more of um, an effort to do that. But at the same time, you have this, these huge um, job losses in um, in reputable journalism in both the US and the UK, which is going to only work against there being sort of reliable um, reliable information, both about politics and uh, about um, coronavirus. So yeah. it's, it's kind of, and what you're really, I mean, it feels like you're moving towards and, you know, you can't blame media companies for creating paywalls as a new system to a new business model, right? To uh, survive what what big tech has done to their revenues, but the result of that and the depth of local journalism is that you're sort of creating um, what they would call news deserts, or or at least you know low income people are really only going to get access to cheap commercially backed, or no, sorry, free commercially backed, probably factually dubious information, or you will be able to. You know, information is a or credible information is becoming is becoming a luxury. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Really interesting. Okay, um, moving on to a separate issue, and that is, uh, I mean, again, I know with with light years, as we were saying earlier on, that you know you're advising a ton of different agencies or a ton of different both agencies and obviously mainly client side brands and and business owners and organisations, etc. Now, you know, again, one of the um, almost consistent narratives of the last decade has been that what we're faced with is a massive oversupply of brands and genuine brand differentiation is staggeringly minimal. Um, Most brands rely on agencies to essentially wildly exaggerate stroke lie about what differences there are. And there's also been quite a lot of talk during this pandemic about is it going to be a situation where lots of these brands, you know, lots of brand owners just clear out cluttered brand portfolios so that they're left with a far, you know, cleaner set of brands to put forward in front of people? Just wondered what, what your thoughts are around this issue of, you know, genuine brand differentiation and whether or not there is a giant oversupply and if if people should be taking this opportunity to quietly just let certain brands, you know, wither and, and go. That's really interesting. I mean, I, um, 
you know, we've been obsessed, it feels like, for the last five years with this, like, uh, huge proliferation of direct-to-consumer brands pumped with VC cash. I personally have been at conferences where their various CMOs or CEOs have been, like, lauded as geniuses um, on stage. Meanwhile, most of them actually not making any money. Um, or not being not profitable and um, likewise they've been you know really credited with as on from a brand point of view from a design point of view and and for me I actually think what's the, the most staggering thing about a lot of these direct consumer brands particularly in the sort of wellness space is is actually their interchangeability like I actually think that most of these brands, it's like, sort of like a millennial soup, like similar fonts, similar yeah. colors, almost identical copy or tone of copy. Um, and what's interesting is that sort of, I, I guess, the, 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 whether or not they're profitable, the weaknesses in their businesses have been exposed by um, COVID. But I also just think the sort of, a lot of them really epitomise that trend of, I guess, like having social good baked into their philosophy or, you know, one-for-one or being really, um, and, and codified that as part of their marketing, you know, like we're transparent, we, you know, you buy a tampon from us and we donate a tampon or whatever. And all of that philosophy is sort of becoming, or the veil is lifted at least uh, as they sort of lay off their employees quite, mercilessly and and that reaches the public uh, discourse pretty quick um mm. and personally i i sort of think that consolidation i think some will remain um but i think that consolidation is, uh, will be really good and I'm, I'm really excited about there genuinely being really distinctive interesting Creative, like brands that are not done by like a sort of paint by numbers um, mm. start off with a genuine idea again it feels like we, we haven't had that for a while okay and then what about in terms of having a genuine idea or indeed we say a genuine role um, and uh, and actually dare I say it, a genuine purpose I mean um, it's interesting to see since the pandemic really got going certain brands have really stood up to be counted and have done useful things in a very proactive way um others have quietly sort of uh, disappeared or kept their heads down others have been just acting like you know essentially all you got to do is keep on going and shout loud and everyone else and hopefully when it all settles they'll still be you know the last one standing um can i ask on that debate i mean i've, I've been asking this basically uh, certainly most of the people i've been speaking to you know that you know to put it sort of bluntly there's the 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 narrative the narrative and adland which goes you know either nothing's changed or or everything's changed and the nothing changed a lot i'd rather put around the sort of mark ritson argument which is what you should be doing is just advertising um or increasing your ad budget to have an ever bigger share of voice because that'll uh, take advantage of others walking away um whereas uh, people like craig maudsley at amv uh, has been quite clear about saying that everything's changed and it'll change everything forever i going to ask where you sit on um that whole sort of line of polarity from essentially nothing's changed so just keep on chucking money at advertising uh, as opposed to everything's changed and your role now as a brand is at the, certainly at the moment is to play a, a a useful role with regards to the pandemic where are you on on that oh, sort of narrative arc 
question because I have different answers for different categories, I think, maybe. Yeah. I do think there's never been – we're reaching almost like the peak of, like, this trend in basically people looking – so beyond even big tech, like people looking to brands generally to, like, A, assessing them on more and more different criteria, whether it's, like, your ethical behaviour, your supply chain, uh, what your pay gap is – um, you know, whether your store is like wrapping in local influences, you know, we're, we're, um, brands sort of consistently been taking a more sort of civic um, role. Um, so I think that has really peaked out. But then the other thing about this very contentious environment is that it's made any self-interest in that become very um, transparent and um, people were incredibly sensitive to that so you can respond in in i guess a couple of ways that like amazon is sort of plowing on right despite negative feelings or discussion around the way it treats its employees uh, it's continuing to not engage and, and maybe it's successful in doing that because it's never promised to do anything other than being a, an amazing retailer whereas where you know where the brand promises have been to be sort of we're better than that we're amazing we're helping solve world problems i think that then becomes much more scrutinized. So maybe maybe it depends on your brand and your brand promise going mm. into this. Um, yeah. I do I do think um, it's incredibly fraught as an issue, as in COVID generally, for brands to market again. But I, I think actually the most successful examples are where brands actually just have complete faith. It, they, they do something good, but they don't advertise it and they just have faith that they'll be discovered because it does get discovered. And th those kind of those kind of things, and I should remember a few, are, are, have been the most successful to me rather than like advertising. But you've got a really sophisticated consumer who knows, I mean, you know, you see that even with the dialogue happening about influencers now. They, they, they know when something is sort of self-interested, even a little bit. So, mm. um so yeah, I don't know. Nothing and everything has changed. Is that a really bad answer? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And what about okay? Different thing. I mean, or a different take on it. I mean, you mentioned the Economist a while ago, and certainly I think it was interesting in the recent, maybe in last week or the week before the economists were talking about where where they see it going and i know it's a really tough call because everyone's constantly having to update their thinking but i just wondered what you thought about their point of view which was and, and i will quote this brief quote from their leader it said um uh, in terms of where we are today um in the long run the firms that survive will have to master a new environment as the crisis and the response to it accelerate three trends First is being uh, an energizing adoption of new technologies. Uh, second being an inevitable retreat from freewheeling global supply chains. And thirdly being a worrying rise in well-connected oligopolies. So that issue of um, new tech uh, being adopted ever faster um, or global supply chains becoming national or perhaps even regional. And then that issue of the big players become even bigger and everyone else is really up against it. Just, I wonder where you are on that. Well, sorry, the question being whether. So the question, I mean, do, 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 you, do you agree with that? So, I mean, from your from your perspective, in terms of um, looking at um, the outputs of where we are at the moment, so the, the economist is saying that you know it's going to be the three big things are um, uh, technology basically gets or new tech gets adopted ever quicker. 
Um, second being um, global supply chains have been found to be wanting. So therefore, people are going to be retreating from them. And we're going to go to more national or perhaps even regional supply chains. And then thirdly, particularly perhaps with regards to things like Silicon Valley uh, or technology in general, can I put it that broadly, um, the, the bigger is going to get bigger and bigger and um, effectively uh, no one else has got a chance. Yeah, I really do agree with that. I mean, you see even in New York, it's kind of heartbreaking, the restaurants, but also countless small businesses being completely wiped out. And so, uh, you know, you, you're really, the people that sort of managed to weather this um, are going to be the sort of, the, the big, but the big, strong companies. And more often than not, that's tech, but there are other other. Um, companies and, and I guess in addition to the sort of supply chain I think there's going to be both in, in businesses and the way they're run but also consumer products a whole load of new protections and insurance policies and you know before all of this um, I guess this is more on the consumer front we saw um, what they would call I guess the anxiety economy you know people already before COVID really um, the, you know, spending a lot on consumer products, even on real estate, you know, as a means to fortify themselves against what they saw as sort of external um, aggressors, whether that's air quality, you know, sort of yeah. air fires, uh, whether that's um, uh, key rings that monitor pollution, whether that's real estate designs to withstand uh, ecological events and cyclones, a massive home security explosion, um, uh, water purifiers that also, and the, land, the way they're marketed saying we're going to put back in the minerals and uh, that, that get stripped out by the uh, water systems for you. So this sense of distrust in institutions and, and consumer protections has led to, and, and again, this sense of like climate change and health concerns has led to really consumers taking it upon themselves to protect themselves against what's and I can only imagine and well you can see with the explosion of, of face masks and really elaborate ones at that um, yeah. uh, and also in places like China the um, more not, not only not taking car sales but individualized travel but ones with uh, germ, germ protections and purifiers air purifiers and so on yeah. This desire to sort of further protect against things that don't, uh, this, those precisely those three factors that you sort of talk about on some level, like protects against that. Okay. Mm. And then what about, I mean, one of the points you made there specifically around issues around sort of uh, environment from the point of view of climate crisis and ecological emergency. I mean, certainly last year, uh, I mean, certainly on this side of the Atlantic, uh, people like Extinction Rebellion had a enormous uh, impact um, uh, on the sort of on the on the public stage. Um, we then saw naturally people like sort of Greta Thunberg um, giving talks at the UN and being sort of a, into sort of the Time magazine person of the year, etc. I think it's interesting that recently... Um, John Elkington, the um, uh, the environmental um, sort of activist and writer, his new book Green Swans, I think, is fantastic. And he was talking in there. I'm sure we've seen it about. Um, uh, he says, you know, so the green swan versus the black swan or whatever. So the green swan is a symbol of radically better times to come. 
getting there from here will be no trivial task, but in times of disruptive change, um, they upend market and political pecking orders, creating social and political shockwaves that can last for decades, even generations. So he says there's going to be a coming boom in what he terms regenerative capitalism. Just wonder what you think about that in terms of his notion of turning this supposed black swan green and how how realistic that is, perhaps in a time when budgets are now going to be slashed because of the coming presumed uh, um, in recession or indeed a depression. So the idea of um, a coming boom in regenerative capitalism. Yeah, I mean, you've started to see that actually that big moves on that front before COVID. Um, so yeah, totally reframing the sustainability and I guess the construct of CSR. Um, yeah. being, it's not enough just to clean up your supply chain. It's not enough just to have everything be recycled. Um, you know, you need to be proactively solving problems. You need to be developing new materials. You need to be reforesting, rewilding. And, and so you saw brands actually making quite big moves on this. Um, so you saw REI um, reforesting um and rewilding parts of South America, and you have um, brands like Timberland paying for or contributing huge amounts to the, the green um, uh, in Africa, the planting of trees. I, I, I think it's called the Green Belt, but maybe I'm losing my mind. Yep. Um, and, uh, and and even in China, you know, like interestingly, for, for a long time, philanthropy and sustainability and um, even charities have like a much more complex, it, or it was a much more complex idea or meant something different to uh, people in China. But you have companies like Alibaba, for example, with Alipay, creating this whole um, initiative around their banking system, around planting of trees and gamifying that and uh, planting new forests. And um, I, I can't remember the exact figure, but there's, you know, sort of millions of trees have been planted as a result of Alipay customers. Um, uh, donating through um, the Alipay system. So yeah. you've seen brands really trying to, like, uh, and, and, and even like hospitality brands that are trying to be regenerative or, or um, uh, you know, uh, uh, give back energy, but the energy producing as such. I do think um, this, there is a, there's an extent to which COVID has been, I guess, a distraction and, you know, I, this is just on an anecdotal level. Someone saying to me, you know, I always take recyclable bags and I've just got that into my day behaviour and habit. And now I'm being told in the supermarket that I have to use plastic for hygiene reasons. Mm. Um, I think to extend COVID on, COVID on a day-to-day basis has been maybe, um, despite the fact you have a lot of dialogue around nature having a break and nature is healing and all of that, I suspect that... Um, things like recycling and refillables in the name of hygiene have maybe taken a bit of a, a pause in terms of consumer priorities. Likewise, natural personal care products being sub- like exchanged back for bleach. Um, yeah. There having been this massive emphasis on like clean and vegan products or even um, healthy bacteria-led clean products. And um, But I do think... After this, that will, yeah, again, I think the pause on it is contextual because we're in crisis mode. And um, I think that it, it will become a, like a, a demand by people after this. 
Yeah, yeah. It's interesting on that exact point. I thought there's a um, of all the uh, sort of mounds of uh, news reports and books that uh, that we've all been reading. I thought that just the the really pithy way of putting it was done by the Times. That just said tomorrow's customer is likely to be poorer, nervous, and obsessed with social distancing and hygiene. I yeah, but you, you know what's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if it's it's not the same in the US, but like I thought it was interesting that Air France um, has been bailed out by the French government, but on condition that routes that are covered by um, French trains um, no longer are covered by flights. So oh, how interesting! Um, right. So I I think um, in in places where it, you know countries where sustainability is a priority and is recognised, you're seeing some sort of creative responses to COVID to sort of mandate more responsible behaviour. Mm. Very interesting. Um, I don't know if you saw the, um, uh, if you've seen the Droga 5 ad for Facebook, uh, has to be said, one of my most hated brands, the antisocial network, but um, uh, but their ad um, for uh, Facebook um, uh, using the uh, Kate Tempest track, uh, People's Faces, uh, and one of the great lines she has that she obviously wrote um, uh, in her epic sort of uh, poetry to go with that was, um, uh, was that a pivotal historical moment we just went stumbling past, um, which seemed to really, really fit with the Droga 5 ad just showing endless empty streets and you know no one being around and obviously she wrote that about a year ago so it wasn't really written about now but it just seems incredibly prescient about now um just one thing i'll ask about that was um when she's interviewed um i think in the new yorker uh, and they said to her again how does she get such a great view on life she just says i witnessed the world by paying attention so just in terms of you and and how i mean obviously you've got a stellar reputation for having your finger on the pulse of what's happening on a macro micro level i mean um without giving you any secrets um how, how do you um how do you uh, witness the world yeah it's i mean that's really interesting because uh, i think i mentioned earlier on like i'm being asked a lot about what what this means going forward and like I keep on sort of pushing back on that because I truly think we don't know um, mm-hmm. and so I've become an obsessive observer of the now and constantly changing now and and relating that back to things that we saw um, really growing before and just, just generally the way that I look at emerging trends is I always put things in context so I look for clusters of activity and I look at various different you know, so I look every day at new things, new products. I have a network of people that feed into my work uh, who are specialised by sort of sector and, and youth culture and whatever. Um, and then you, you sort of have cadences, like you then take a step back every two weeks and you see if there are any patterns between those things. And then every month and um, you quite quickly see patterns emerging. And that's, that's really, that's how you sort of... Uh, Knowing that context and knowing also the context of like economic drivers and so on, you can make a really good assessment of when you see a new cluster of products of things that are going to become more of more of a phenomenon. Like one thing I think that's really interesting. Sorry, the other thing I'll say is that like there's different sorts of trends. So you have, of course you have these sort of macro trends that are sort of moving. I guess like a big like well-being, the experience economy. That you have underneath that continuous iterations of what that looks like to people and how what that means is changing and you know so well-being at first was sort of quite straightforward and then it 
incorporated sexual well-being and mental health and and now there's a whole number of different categories that are sort of wrapped into the well-being space so the sort of macro trends and there's other trends um but to, to give you a sense of how that works like so um for a long time i've been looking at this idea of like convergence for example of like how the really concentrated way that we spend online and interact with products is you're seeing tech platforms really try to catch up with that and create these multifaceted virtuous ecosystems so you know you have amazon uh launching a tv show that you can then shop or sponsoring rihanna's live fashion show where you could not film it when you went in there and then you could only watch it on amazon prime and then you were able to shop the um, products via amazon or you know spotify teaming with um instagram and trying to sort of um diversify and uh, create video original video content so you kind of have got like you know facebook of course launching shops and so from shopping to entertainment to gaming um all these things are being sort of connected in in each of the tech platforms in in in, a, in virtual ecosystems i would say and mm. that was already happening and, and and then what's been what's been interesting about the way or new content trends or behaviors during this time is for, for me just one of them for example is um this idea of sort of social tv so um of course you've seen the explosion of instagram uh, live and also IGTV, people watching long-form, user-generated content on on Instagram um, yep. and TikTok. And, and part of the appeal of that being that there is a degree of interactivity. Like you feel like you're, when you're watching Instagram live, you you see people's responses and comments live. And um, so, and it, it was interesting, like sort of looking back at CES this year. Uh, Samsung introduced a, uh, a TV called the Cero, which was capable of being both landscape and portrait. And the, the argument was, you know, so people can watch TikTok, right, on um, <laughs> on the TV. And at the yeah. time, that sort of felt like a bit gimmicky, as so many of the things are at CES. But when you put that in the context of what's happening now, I think more and more, especially as people spend more time at home, so looking at that context, more and more people yeah. spending more time at home, isolated but online all the time, and looking for ways to uh, be part of something live. Like you can see that eventually, hardware like TVs are going to be more optimized to incorporate social features, and and therefore also Instagram Live should, frankly, in, in, improve its sound quality and visual quality for TV. Yeah, yeah. And um, so whereas smart TVs are always connected to like, I guess, integrated with your laptop, I think you're going to see much more connection between social networks and mobile phones and your smart TV at home. And um, mm. I guess that's an example of how you see something now and you sort of know it's going to be a bigger thing because you know what's gone, the context of what's gone before that is only going to continue. Right? Whereas other stuff is, I think, probably a little bit contextual, like the sort of celebrity backlash i think that's quite contextual and yeah yeah it's now like people feeling really nervous and like people are losing their jobs i i don't know that we've like permanently lost celebrities 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, and it just seemed, doesn't it, already quite a long time ago of just when the whole thing really kicked off. And I know just all those uh, uh, heartfelt, you know, um, celeb um, um, sort of uh, moments with a tear in their, eye, in their eyes as they sat around their giant pool holding a sort of pina colada and uh, <laughs> asking us to uh, sort of feel their pain. Excellent. Uh, so, could I say just, just the last couple of things? It's been super, super interesting. Um, so, so uh, thanks so much, Lucy. Um, so, just what about um, this issue? I mean, certainly, I've been um, sort of a sort of you know hanging most of these talks around the sort of three things that I'm really interested in at the moment, being sort of um, which I've really put under the banners of you know um, you know uh, hope, community, and resilience being the way forward um, uh, during and after all of this. Um, feel free to totally disagree. But I mean, where do you, what do you think about those hope, community and resilience as being three key points? Are they or are they not? Or is it something else or yeah. what? Yeah, I think those are really um, relevant. I mean, certainly community. Again, before this, I was talking a lot about this idea of the crisis of connection. Um, particularly among, among millennials who, because of on-demand platforms and the sort of hyper-individualised way that they interact with each other and uh, internet platforms and even services, you know, like you can order anything. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait on a train platform anymore. Like you don't have to go into a restaurant to pick up your food. You you don't have to be take part in a sort of uh, shared social fabric if you don't want to. And, there was a rise yeah. of recognition that that was actually sort of bad for us and actually yeah. eroding our sense of empathy and empathy is actually really good for us and um but also making us miserable and and so a real you saw that emerge in uh, you know on a brand level in like hospitality brands really trying to build community um yeah, yeah you saw more and more of a recognition that the way our lives were including putting work at the centre, you know, validation through career at the centre of everything um, was, was not working for us. So, so, like, and the desire for community. So I think that's definitely um, hope and positivity. I mean, you've seen particularly a lot of brands tap into that. I think that's 100% um, a key thing. Remind me your third one. What was the other one? Resilience. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. When it's sort of interesting when you look at what's happening with well-being now that had gotten so ridiculous and bloated and elitist and faddy, and you've seen a real consolidation of that of you know away from this idea of like performative self-improvement for yeah. channels towards something much more internal and you know yeah how do you get through this how do you survive how you know, building mental strength and emotional strength and what do you need to do that and and also that the fact that like or the emphasis that that doesn't need to be expensive it should be accessible to everyone so yeah i um i would agree with with those three things excellent delighted to hear it <laughs> <laughs> send uh, the cash to the usual uh, address but um excellent form so i mean lucy i think we're just about out of time i know you'll be charging around uh, your uh, sort of uh, new york neighborhood so just to, so everyone is clear where they can track you down so um just remind us so where are you on uh, that their social media oh yes yeah, so um well my my website is this is like is.com and rather embarrassingly my social handles are lucy luxury uh, all of them are lucy luxury so l-u-c-i-e luxury 
And that is because my uh, former boss and mentor, Martin Raymond, the founder of the um, Future Laboratory, there were two Lucy's working in the company and one was in sales. And I had just left the Financial Times where all I seemed to write about was luxury. So my name quickly became Lucy Luxury and I liked that. Then. So, yeah, I don't know, that's a long explanation, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. That is absolutely superb. Well, that's really, really interesting. So, thanks so much, Lucy. It's absolutely um, uh, brilliant stuff. So, uh, yeah, well, uh, Lucy Green, um, the epic Lucy Green, thank you very much indeed. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the New Abnormal podcast. We hope you enjoyed it please leave a rating, tell your friends, and until next time, goodbye.